Welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with me, Susie Chase. Hello, my name is Deborah Samuels, and my cookbook is My Japanese Table, a lifetime of cooking with friends and family. My Japanese Table, a cookbook designed for people who love to eat Japanese food but are slightly apprehensive about preparing it at home, could have been written for me, a Western home cook. While reading your cookbook, I couldn't help but feel like this was as much of an affair with Japanese food as a love affair between two 20-year-old Americans starting life in Japan. Can you describe to us what your first few months were like in Japan? Well, yes. um, Thanks, Susie. I I think you got that exactly right. Um, Actually, uh, my husband and I are high school sweethearts and um, went off to different colleges, and he had an opportunity to go on a study abroad program to Japan, and uh, we just couldn't bear the thought of being separated for six months, so our parents let us get married in college, and off we went together to Japan for the uh, first six months of our marriage. Um, We studied Japanese for a year before we went, and then studied intensively there, and um, lived with families for those first six months. I like to say that I was prepared for going to Japan academically, but I wasn't really quite prepared for the, the sights, the sounds, the new foods. Everything was new. We had never been out of the country before. Nice Jewish girl from Long Island, and I've got tofu for breakfast. It was um, It was staggering, but I think one of the most uh, telling things for us is the way we were treated by um, just everyday folks. Uh, We were aware that it wasn't too many years past World War II, and uh, we were just embraced. And um, it made a huge, huge um, impression on us. And our first host family um, from 1972, we are still close friends and fam- with their family um, today. We actually consider them our Japanese family members. So talk to us about how presentation of Japanese food is so very important. I think it just permeates everything that the Japanese do. I also think it has to relate to sort of the small amount of space that they live in, and they maximize that. And so they do that with the presentation of food, of gifts, of everything. You know, the Japanese have a saying, meide taberu, they eat with their eyes. And they appreciate everything with their eyes first and then participate in it. And I think that I learned how important presentation was when I saw people taking almost an hour to prepare a meal for a five-year-old and thinking that this was important enough for them to be able to absorb this 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 beauty. Uh, food is presented as gifts. Wrapping is as important as what is inside. And I think was visually bombarded by that. Every time I sat down for a meal, every time I went into a simple grocery store or a convenience store for just something, everything was presented with care. The Japanese word umami is everywhere now in American cuisine. What exactly is umami? The word was first discovered by a Japanese uh, scientist in the early part of the 1900s. He discovered this umami in seaweed, in kombu, which is a type of seaweed that comes, uh, that they use very often in Japan to make stocks. 
And he was able to manufacture this. And so what it has become is a flavor enhancer. And what we used to know as um, as MSG, which is a bad word in um, the American uh, culinary uh, lexicon, but um, actually is not as harmful as people think. So it's a flavor booster. And these things uh, stimulate... Um, they have glutamic acid, and these are the. This is an element that um, enhances the flavors of, of food. You find umami or natural umami in Parmesan cheese, in meat, in mushrooms, in seaweed. It's not just um, Japanese cuisine, but it was first discovered there. Um, and now we're using words like umami bomb. So. I, I feel like Americans use umami like they use the word flavor, like yes. it, it has good umami, but I feel like they're using it wrong. Well, they're using it way too much, I would say. Uh, it's definitely an overuse of the word. One time I was looking, I was reading the food section in the New York Times and the Boston Globe, um, the Boston Globe, uh, which I write for. And I don't know, five out of seven articles have the word umami in it. it. It has become a catchphrase. It has. And really, people are using it just to say flavor bomb, extreme flavor. Yes. So I sort of agree with, agree with you um, on that. In your cookbook, My Japanese Table, you write, one thing always leads to another in life. Mm-hmm. How did you get started training and developing cooking programs? My first job out of college, I went to a teacher's college, was as a 4-H agent, a county extension agent, in the urban areas of Middlesex County here in Boston. And I had never participated in anything like raising animals or uh, canning or anything like that. And it was my job to kind of bring that concept into the city. I started learning quite a bit about canning and about uh, food preparation that I had not uh, originally been uh, exposed to. One of the first programs I developed was a cooking program for kids um, in the city because everybody's interested in food. And this was one thing I thought could kind of translate from urban, from suburban and rural to uh, to the city. Since I went to Japan, my adventuresomeness in cooking, if you can say that, and uh, eating just sort of expanded, and I began sharing that. I also worked at the Children's Museum in Boston and developed a kids are cooking program. I started to teach English to Japanese people who had come to the United States, you know, with their families here in Boston. The first cooking classes, the first classes we did was usually in the supermarket because they did not, the Japanese women did not know what to do with these ingredients. And from that developed a cooking, cooking programs in American cuisine. That's kind of how I started developing classes in a more formal way. Food is that one thing that everybody is interested in, everybody wants to talk about. Tell us about the five important elements of Japanese cuisine. Well, this uh, the five elements um, of Japanese cuisine are sort of based around these five different colors. Red, yellow, green, white, and black. And these colors are thought to, if you have these five colors on your plate representative in food, you are thought to have a balanced diet. Each color has a major body organ that they also represent, uh, the liver, heart, lungs, stomach, and kidneys. And then it relates to the five elements um, out there, 
wood, fire, earth, metal, and water. And then it goes even further, and they represent five flavors, sour, bitter, sweet, salty, um, and hot. And it is thought that if these colors are represented on your plate, that not only is your nutrition in balance, but your kind of your life is in balance. So they think about this in a whole. But color is a major way that Japanese put uh, meals together. It was interesting to read that one way to maintain access to high-quality food within a household budget is mm-hmm. to reduce the volume, emphasize smaller portions. As an American, where mm-hmm. bigger is better, this seems like a brilliant novel idea to me. It took a little while to get used to the smaller portions, um, and I wasn't quite aware initially that although I had smaller portions, I had a larger variety of food. But, you know, the Japanese in particular have something called Ichiju Sansai, which is the way they look at a meal. They have rice and soup and then three side dishes. Meat or protein like that is considered a side dish, not a main dish. It's part of an entire, it's in part of a, of a whole. People from other countries, not just Japan, are appalled and shocked when they sit down at a restaurant and are faced with the amount of food that's on the plate. It's definitely not the way the rest of the world thinks. How did we get to be like that? I think we did start out with smaller portions, and then something happened in the 80s. Well, I don't know, but I think what started happening was this competition among restaurants to provide people with a large amount of food for what is considered a value. And, you know, if you go to some of these sort of vaguely Italian restaurants and they put a pound of pasta on your plate, their intention generally is not that you sit there and eat the whole pasta, but that you'll take some home. So you get two meals from one. You know, labeling has actually helped things. And now these fast food restaurants and other places are having to uh, display the caloric content of what's on your plate. Moving on to the Japanese lunchbox, bento. For my nine-year-old's lunch, I made him the elementary school sampler bento from page 144. So I had to get up a half hour earlier than normal (laughs) (laughs) in order to arrange the contents in an eye-catching fashion. Mm -hmm. It was so stressful, but you know what? He (laughs) ate the whole thing. He ate the whole thing. It's fascinating. So you got a half up a half an hour later than most Japanese women get. Up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so what's the story behind bentos? Yes. Well, you know, it's it's a type of eating. It's it's really it's really the sort of the original portable meal, and I think um, bento has become quite popular in the United States now. People see it in restaurants, and they kind of get it in a large box with compart. It's compartmentalized food, lots of cute little goodies in a in, in a in a box arranged attractively if done correctly. You know, bento has certainly has had its um, waves in in Japan as well, but. Generally speaking, Japanese moms, and I'm sorry to be sexist about this, but they're still the larger, most of the um, food for kids are made by moms. Um, And the meals have to be attractive. They have to be nutritious. They have to be uh, something that the child uh, will eat completely. It's the mother's obligation to make the meal, and it's the child's responsibility 
to eat it in its entirety. And um, that is something that's, you know, taken rather seriously um, in Japan. And, um, you know, although not every day is a cute bento day, people are becoming familiar with these very cute character bentos. Everybody doesn't spend their time doing that. But they do spend their time making lunches for their, uh, for their families. But they really see this as a serious job. Something, you know, I'm very serious when I say the word job. It's sort of part of their job as being a mother. Not everybody's bentos are, you know, gorgeous, but they're usually pretty healthy. And they're usually, you know, made with either leftovers from the night before, um, added um, touches of things made in the morning. But they contain these five, generally contain these five colors. There is a dark side to bento. I'll have to say that, too, because, as you said, you felt a little bit of pressure. Can you imagine everybody looking at your bento when you go to school? Uh, The teacher is looking at your bento um, to see if the parent has put in a sufficient amount of effort. Other mothers are looking at the bentos of children. The other children are looking at each other's bentos. And so there is definitely a pressure um, involved, to, to perform or um, conform um, to doing these, these uh, lunches for kids. I do understand when I started making bento for my son, because um, we've been back to Japan many, many times uh, while my husband was on sabbatical, and our older son went to a Japanese uh, elementary school, and I had to produce a bento. Um, and at first I thought, these, these people are cracked. They're going to get up an hour early and make something like this for a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, I don't get it. And then as I made, began to make the bento boxes, my son wanted to fit in, I, I understood how aesthetics is learned and how children become acculturated to what is valued in their society. And it changed my attitude completely. Where can we find you on the web? I have a website, www.cookingatdebras.com, and it's all spelled out. Uh, the at is spelled out, and Debra's does not have an apostrophe uh, in it. And um, I have an Instagram um, site as well, at Cooking at Debra's, as well as a Twitter account. And I try to stay present. Um, I also, as I said, I'm a food writer for the Boston Globe, uh, so I do um, articles uh, periodically. Um, not just on Japanese cuisine, but on food and culture, which is always uh, very interesting, Um, especially now when everybody is interested in food. Thanks, Deborah, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you very much, Susie. It was a pleasure.